0: Writers off the page 40 years of Tifa. This podcast series is a part of a multi-year digital initiative from the Toronto Public Library from the archives which presents curated and recently digitized audio, video, and other content from the archives of some of Canada's most important institutions and organizations. I'm Randy Boyagoda. Today's episode of Writers off the page features the second of four parts with American writer and thinker Susan Sontag. If you haven't heard the previous parts of this series with Susan Sontag, not to worry. The four episodes that make up this interview can be listened to in any order. But to get the full sense of the scope and scale of this conversation, as well as Sontag's fire and spark that comes out in the conversation, be sure and bookmark the entire four-episode cycle so that you don't miss any of them.
1: You're absolutely right that particularly uh, with the two illness essays, the one I wrote at the end of the 70s when I had cancer the first time and I was told I was going to die and this was my the last thing I could ever write and I, as a patient, as a full-time patient, I was so uh, struck by all the clichés and and uh, um, mystifications surrounding the idea of cancer. and and, and the, the sense in which I discovered uh, my f- uh, fellow patients, other people who were patients along with me in a, two cancer hospitals, one in New York City, one in Paris, where I, where I was a patient for two and a half years, uh, and that they were so spooked, they were so freaked out. There they, they were people who hadn't told their families they had cancer, they were, didn't tell, tell their neighbors people who had that they worked with, uh, because to have cancer wasn't like having an an ordinary serious illness. It was such of scandal or shame. They couldn't even pronounce the word.
0: Six years after Susan Sontag died, I felt her loss, as a reader suddenly wishing she were still writing. In 2010, Siddhartha Mukherjee published The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer. I read the book, I read a lot about the book, and I reviewed it. Many times, throughout the time I spent with an ambitious, sprawling, complex account of a relentless disease, and our unrelenting efforts across millennia of human experience to understand and defeat, or at least survive and live with it, I wondered what Sontag would have thought, and more importantly, what she would have written about this so-called biography of cancer. Sontag was diagnosed with breast cancer in the mid-1970s. Following two years of treatment in the United States and France and of observing how those around her lived and died with cancer, she wrote Illness as Metaphor, a book-length essay whose commanding appeal owes much to the integration of Sontag's personal experience of cancer and intellectual interrogation of its presence in personal lives and public life alike. Through this and later work that considered photography, AIDS, and also our ethical and aesthetic relationship to visual representations of suffering, Sontag established herself as both a singular voice of personally convicted insight and a master of the essay form. And yet, as you'll see in this interview with Evan Solomon, for all the pride and remarkable amount of work she put into essays, she ultimately considered novels the better literary form. As a reader and as a writer, because of the multiplicity of voices and perspectives they bring forth, and also because of the enlargements and educations in feeling and understanding that the novel makes possible. You'll notice, partway through this segment, a modulation in Sontag's voice and mood, away from the critical and combative to the appreciative and affirming, even awestruck. Here's someone who was reading at the age of three, Here's someone who was reading German modernist fiction in ninth grade. You know what she means. You know there's nothing like that moment you finish reading a great novel. And you look up, you look around, and two things happen. First, you remember your surroundings and then realize you'd forgotten them because of how fully immersed you had been in an elsewhere just moments, pages ago. Second, if it was a great novel... Your surroundings and the people and things in them look and sound different. Whether better or worse doesn't matter. They have a fullness to them that you didn't notice before reading that novel, regardless of where it was set and where you are. But how do you explain all of that to someone else? You turn to Susan Sontag, who could describe your experiences better than you can, whether it means to live with cancer, or, she puts it, to live with novels. This interview was recorded live at the International Festival of Authors, now called TIFA, in October of 2000, when Sontag came to town upon the occasion of the publication of her novel, In America.
2: I mean, I think about your essays. As you say, you have to sponsor a point of view. I mean, this is a very political side, uh, pointed political point of view in a lot of your essays. And in the things that you've done, you know, whether you're going to North Vietnam uh, or whether going to Bosnia, and I think about essays have a have an ethical imperative beneath them. You know, even when you read illness as metaphor, you think people who are ill, they can have a way of knowing that's different. It can help them. And you told me you said this this could help people. And yet I wonder about novels. Do you ever have a a, a sense that? Now, the world may be able to exist without a novel in America, but sick people may not cope as well without the kind of knowledge of AIDS and its metaphors or illnesses metaphor. Is there a sense that you, as, the, as a political person, are working uh, in the essay form, and there's another side of you in the novel form?
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd use the word political, but I'd certainly use the word ethical. And I think it's what kept me, uh, uh, what inhibited me for many years from from attempting a full-scale return to fiction. Having started as a novelist, my first book as a novel, The Benefactor, it was exactly, exactly what you say. I really thought I was, uh, for all my... Aestheticist palaver in the 1960s I mean, of course I didn't really, really believe it. I thought I should it was a but are you I sure you maintain. don't really really believe it i didn't really I mean let's say I didn't really believe it it didn 't represent everything I felt. It represented a position I thought was a welcome corrective to a lot of philistine talk that was going down then. but anyway, uh, I feel much more comfortable with the later essays. Uh, and I was very much, uh, well, even in the 60s, but certainly in, in, in the essays of the 70s and 80s, I was absolutely mobilized and energized by a conscious ethical purpose. And you're, you're absolutely right that particularly uh, with the two illness essays, the one I wrote at the end of the 70s when I had cancer the first time and I was told I was going to die, and this was my going to be the last thing I could ever write. And I, as a patient, as a full-time patient, I was so uh, struck by all the cliches and, and uh, um, mystifications surrounding the idea of cancer and 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 the, the sense in which I discovered uh, my f- uh, fellow patients, uh, other people who were patients along with me in a two cancer hospitals, one in New York City, one in Paris, where I, where I was a patient for two and a half years, uh, that they were so spooked. They were so freaked out. There they, they were people who hadn't told their families they had cancer. They were, didn't t- tell their neighbors people who had that they worked with uh, because to have cancer wasn't like having a, an, an ordinary serious illness. It was a kind of scandal or shame. They couldn't even pronounce the word. These were very Common attitudes 20, 25 years ago, and so I decided, you know, being a bit of a crusader always, that uh, my last essay would be attacking these myths or mystifications about about cancer. And I'd gained a lot of experience and some even some medical knowledge being a being a full-time cancer patient. And um, then uh, I didn't think I would. I did to the astonishment of my doctors uh, recover. I was cured, um, and uh, and then. Time went on and the 80s, the the, the AIDS pandemic struck and a number of friends of mine uh, died and I began to hear in the uh, cliches about AIDS a lot of very extraordinary stereotypes which made me feel that perhaps a sequel to this could be written that would be helpful to people. And consoling to people and also encouraging people to seek better treatment, because uh, that's part of the story. People are afraid to go to the doctor to be diagnosed. They're afraid to be good advocates on their own behalf uh, when they're seriously ill. It was And uh, this these t- two little uh, illness books that are now published as one, illness is metaphor, AIDS and its metaphors, uh, are used a lot in medical schools and nursing schools and many, 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 Hundreds of people actually have written me or contacted me in one way or another and said that it was really helpful to them. In some cases, life-saving. Uh, read these essays and get better treatment or whatever. Uh, so I was very exalted and 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 uh, by understanding that I could be useful, that I could do good, and indeed, exactly what you say, I. I started to feel, well, how could I go back to fiction? Who needs novels? I mean, it was just, I had become a kind of Savonarola. of my, From starting out as sort of Oscar Wilde, I had turned into some sort of extraordinary moralist, you know, who, uh, who uh, it, was, it really was an amazing evolution, though both sides of me were always there, in which, unless it pr- fulfilled a very high moral purpose, I wasn't gonna allow something to be published. And that was a further evolution, Uh, in which I had to sort of rediscover the great purpose of fiction, which I think is, um, I'm really going to sound old-fashioned, which is the education of the feelings, the enlargement and education of feeling. Because I I, I began to reconnect with what fiction has always meant to me. I mean, I don't think I would be the person I am without having read Dostoevsky. I mean, I've been educated humanly by the great novels and by great poetry and other forms of art. And so I was, uh, so, so the good that art can do or fiction can do it specifically isn't just uh, something as concrete as this, as these illness essays. There is a, a larger moral purpose or a larger necessity. But that, of course, has made me a rather strict... Writer, strict, strict with myself, and even strict as a reader. I don't, I don't just want to write novels that I don't think have any necessity. I think, I think, the comprehensibility, and ambition in theme, and 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 necessity. That a book should have some necessity. That you should precisely feel what you exactly what you say that uh, this, this, this should have been written. It was worth doing. It's not just another entertainment.
2: Well, what does that mean in just another entertainment? I think specifically about how we value books that give us pleasure. Is, it, do, is there a way in your mind to then measure you know, good books and bad books, not just on technique, but on education of the feelings? How well they uh, articulate the human condition? or even if it's a moral thing.
1: Well, I think that if, if, if our feelings are educated, it's through the creation of character, and, and we are moved by characters in fiction, and we are, we are moved by, by who they are and what they express. We're reminded of of the possibilities of being human. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not bored by, or I'm, I don't, I'm not, I mean, I, when I say the education of feelings, it sounds like some kind of dutiful task, you know, eat your spinach or something. I'm intensely amused or entertained or enthralled. I, I mean, I, I read for pleasure, just the way I go to movies for pleasure, I listen to music for pleasure, I go to the opera for pleasure, dance performances. It's pure pleasure but I feel nourished by it. I mean, I don't, uh, uh, well, let me just use, I'm, I'm on the edge of a food metaphor, so let me follow it. I mean, <laughs> if I enjoy eating, but it's nourishing, you know. I mean, one thing is not, uh, uh, it doesn't exclude the other. Um, I, I was, I reread a lot, and uh, the next to last novel I read which was a novel I reread. The, the last novel I read, which, which that's another story, was Bulgakov's uh, uh, The Master and Margarita, which I just read in the last two, two, two weeks or so. Uh, but before that, the, the, the novel I read before that was um, Great Expectations. And uh, I mean, these are novels I've read several times, and of course the great pleasure, if you, if you live with novels, is you know your hundred favorite novels to read them again every five years, seven years, whatever. And I, this time, I didn't remember it in the past when I read Great Expectations. I, I remember, all, you know, about Miss Havisham, of course, and her cake, and the rats, and Pip, and Estrella, and so on. And this time, I was very struck by Joe Gargery, uh, Pip's brother-in-law. And it's Dickens' attempt to portray a good person, a genuinely kind person, a generous person. Uh, And uh, he succeeds I think very well and much better with this male character than he does with some of his more saccharine uh, portraits of female goodness. Uh, Joe Gargery is a wonderful person and I was very moved by this character and reading the book, which I have read several times and I've seen the wonderful David Lean movie of many years ago. um, I, 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 I felt nourished by this book. I felt I felt inspired by it. I mean, it's a This is a very well-known classic, and it's not, you know, uh, I was saying, this book gives me something. It gives me, uh, it stretches me a little bit. And I'm not talking about Dostoevsky, Kafka, Proust here. I'm talking about a book that's, most people would say has not very much ethical content. But I think anything that stretches us and shows us the range of human behavior and something about the human heart and consciousness and feeling and people dealing with complexity and sadness and fear of death and so on, these things give pleasure and they give a a greater sense of mastery in our own lives. So, you know, when I say education of the heart, I, 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 that, that may be Homer, or it may be certain poets, but I think this is a necessary purpose. You know, when, when uh, I, I don't want to say art is simply useful, but it is useful. It is useful to us. It's useful to us like food.
0: Susan Sontag was born in 1933 to parents of Jewish, Lithuanian, and Polish descent. She grew up in Los Angeles, studied in California, Chicago, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Paris, and Oxford, and lived and wrote for the majority of her life in New York, where she died in 2004. She was survived by her longtime companion, the photographer Annie Leibowitz, and also by the writer David Reif, her son from her marriage to the sociologist Philip Reif. Stay tuned for part three of this four-part series. Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of TIFA is a year-long podcast series that celebrates 40 years of the Toronto International Festival of Authors. It's produced by the Toronto Public Library. The executive producer is Gregory McCormick, and this episode was produced by Danielle McNally and me, Randy Boyagoda, with technical support from George Panayotu, Michelle DeMarco, marketing support from Tanya Oleksic, and research support from Marcella Van Run. Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of TIFA is the first part of a multi year digital initiative called From the Archives, which features recently digitized audio, video, and other content from some of Canada's most important institutions and organizations. For more about Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of TIFA, visit tpl.ca forward slash podcasts, where you will find links to the books mentioned in each episode and links to other relevant materials in TPL's collections. Music is by Yuka. I'm Randy Boyagoda, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Writers Off the Page, 40 Years of Tifa.